Welcome to Pediatric Meltdown, the podcast about children's mental health and emotional well-being. I'm Dr. Leah Gagino, a primary care pediatrician, and I created this podcast for the pediatric medical community and anyone who cares about children's behavioral health. Pediatric Meltdown offers thoughtful conversations featuring experts from the field. Learn practical strategies from the best and become a savvier clinician. Hey listeners, welcome back to another episode of Pediatric Meltdown. And as always, I am so grateful that you are taking time out of your busy day to take a listen. My guests today are two outstanding experts in the field of gun injury prevention. And my first guest is Dr. Eric Fliegler. Dr. Fliegler is a pediatric emergency physician and health services researcher at Boston Children's Hospital and an assistant professor of pediatrics and emergency medicine at the Harvard Medical School. He was a political science major at Brown University, received his MD from the University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine, and his Master's of Public Health from the Harvard School of Public Health. His clinical work includes attending in the emergency department as well as the director of the sedation services at Boston Children's. His research and innovation has focused on three major areas. One, the development and evaluation of tools to screen and refer families for health-related social needs, including the development of Health Steps, a web and mobile app that is now the referral system for the United Way of Massachusetts 211 and used by over 100,000 people annually. Number two, firearm injury research with a focus on epidemiology, risk factors, and the role of legislation in reducing firearm fatalities. And three, health inequities by race, ethnicity, and poverty. Dr. Fliegler regularly lectures around the country, and I was really delighted to hear him at the AAPNCE conference in 2021. Dr. Fliegler is joined by Dr. Lois Lee. Dr. Lois Lee's work focuses on pediatric emergency medicine, health disparities, injuries, and health policy. This is grounded in her clinical work as a pediatric emergency medicine physician, also at Boston Children's Hospital, and Associate Professor of Pediatrics and Emergency Medicine at the Harvard Medical School. At Boston Children's Hospital, she is the Associate Program Director for Public Policy at the new Sandra L. Fenwick Institute for Pediatric Health Equity and Inclusion. She received her MD at the Perlman School of Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania, and completed her residency in pediatrics at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia and her Pediatric Emergency Medicine Fellowship at Boston Children's Hospital. During that time, she also received her MPH at the Harvard Chan School of Public Health. Dr. Lee has published seminal research on pediatric emergency medicine, health disparities, and injury prevention. With her expertise, she holds national positions in the American Academy of Pediatrics Committee on Pediatric Emergency Medicine and the Council on Injury, Violence, and Poison Prevention. She is the inaugural director of the Academic Pediatric Association's Health Policy Scholars Program, and I am so delighted to welcome both Drs. Fliegler and Lee to the podcast. Hi, guys. How are you? Uh, doing great. Thank you. Thank you so much for having us. I'm so delighted that you're with me. And 
you know, this is a a pretty heavy duty topic. And before we get into that, I just wanted to touch, kind of touch base a little bit with how you guys chose pediatrics and in particularly, you know, this injury prevention focus. Well, I'll start. I was always interested in pediatrics, but my interest in pediatric injury prevention, I have to give all the credit to my longtime mentor, Dr. Flora Winston at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. She was my clinic preceptor. And sometime in my second year of residency, she asked me if I was interested in helping her with a research project. And it turns out it was one of the first papers looking at the effects of airbags and motor vehicles on children which does tell you a little bit how old I am, since that was shortly (laughs) after airbags were introduced in motor vehicles. Then when I went to fellowship in Boston, there was really nobody doing this work. I ended up working in a lab for three years, which basically taught me I never wanted to work in a lab again. (laughs) Although I do appreciate people who do that work. Absolutely. And then when I became junior faculty, realized I wanted to stick with my true passion, which is injury prevention and trauma care. So um, like Lois, uh, I went to the University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine, uh, and I was uh, incredibly fortunate to work with just the most amazing advocate, uh, Ken Ginsberg, who's an adolescent uh, specialist, who really taught me about advocacy and what it means to think about our patients outside of the medical side of things. When I did my pediatric rotation, I I loved it. And and what I realized is I didn't just love the kids, which is important, but I love caring for the whole family. When I did my uh, training uh, up at Boston Children's Hospital and Boston Medical Center, the emergency medicine spoke to me. Uh, it was a place where I could really do great care and, and in particular, uh, help families when they were really in need and, and scared. And I love that. But I also wanted to do work at a broader level. And I'm also a health services researcher. And my major focus initially, uh, and still I do a lot of work, is in thinking about family social needs. But I wanted to do something that had a direct relationship to our emergency care. And so Lois and I, about a dozen years ago, I really started to focus group of us related to injury prevention work. And that's that's kind of how that grew. And it's been an area that has really been a, a, a wonderful experience to work in. I'm so glad that there are people like you because... You know, the emergency room, although I enjoyed it, it just, you know, doing primary care was my jam and and I really loved it. But like you, you know, I found that I didn't think I wanted to do pediatrics. I thought I wanted to do OB. And then when I did Pete's rotation, I'm like, nope, this is where I'm meant to be. So yeah, so I'm glad that uh, we're all in the same in the same field. And Plus, I love pediatricians. I mean, they're just fun people, you know. So let's talk about the topic today, which is gun injury and firearm prevention, you know, injuries. And let's let's start with just how big is this problem and, and you know, why why should we care about it? What's what's the data look like? Uh When it comes to firearm injuries, the problem is enormous. There's a number of things to recognize. One, this is a very uniquely United States problem. This problem really does not exist anywhere else in the world, certainly not in in, uh, the industrialized world. But in the United States, firearm injuries and firearm fatalities uh, outstrip so many things. Just kind of give you a, a broad sense of things. The CDC has just released the 2020 data. In the United States, there were over 45,000 fatalities from firearms last year, which far outstripped the prior year, which was a little under 40,000. This is in excess of all motor vehicle collision fatalities. So we have really kind of really grown in terms of that. With regards to kids, the numbers are impressive uh, in in a sad way. There are over 3,500 pediatric fatalities every single year. 
it has become not only the number one killer uh, related from injuries of children, but has probably become the number one killer of children, period, of all things. When you look at adolescents between the ages of 15 and 24, over one in five, when they die, will die because of firearms. So that just kind of gives you a, a quick sweep of this. There are enormous problems related to disparities. Black uh, men die at a rate of 21 times greater than white men. Uh, if you look at American Indians, it's close to five times greater than white. And if you look at Hispanics, it's over three times greater. So there are tremendous disparities in the number of people who are dying, let alone being injured, is enormous. Yeah. Any other thoughts on that from your perspective, Lois? I think what's really interesting is that motor vehicle crash deaths in children have really decreased over the last several decades as we have really had a concerted effort in trying to improve the safety of cars, of how children drive in cars, and on road conditions as well. So I do think, you know, back in the 70s, nobody would have thought that it would be the success story today. And I have, think we have to take that kind of approach and not just say, you know what, we can't do anything about firearms. I think we can look at motor vehicles and say, not only can we, we really have to, since now it is our leading killer of children when you think about injuries. Yeah, it's kind of one of those, like, we did this, we can do this, right? We can keep kids safe. We know how. So, you know, you mentioned a little bit about the disparities in men. Does it look like that in children too, the the disparities in who's dying? Yes, absolutely. So what is different about the kind of the, some of the epidemiology of pediatrics versus kind of adult population, in pediatrics, about 60% of the fatalities are homicide related and about 35% are suicide. When you look at the adult population, it's completely flipped. So it's uh, suicides are predominant, about 60%, and homicides, about 37%. In the pediatric population where you see those homicides, the people who are dying from homicides are those who have black and brown skin, uh, and the, the disparities are quite significant. As I mentioned, men is where you, where I kind of gave the specific numbers. It's the same with women. Um, you see the same disparities. It's just on a an order of magnitude less, since the majority of people who die from firearms, about 85%, are male. Boy, what you're saying, I, the numbers are so startling because if what you're saying is possibly the number one killer in kids is firearm injury, and we know the second leading cause of death in teenagers is suicide, and half of those are firearms by firearm, that means that kids are dying. The first and second reason is firearm injuries. Do I have that right? You do. And, and it's one of the major points when we think about the types of interventions. When we think about uh, suicide, we think about what's known as lethal means restrictions, trying to limit the access of kids to guns. When it comes to homicide, there's a lot of issues related, uh, certainly around gang violence, which have a whole other set of uh, interventions. But there's also one-on-one -on -one individual violence that occurs. And the, and the most important thing to recognize is these fatalities, both the suicides and the homicides, would not occur if the guns were not available. Uh, it's again, I've said a uniquely American problem, and, and we need to keep that in mind that these things do not need to be the way they are. And I want just to point out about suicides, right? If you try to kill yourself with a gun, you're more than 95% likely to kill yourself which is unlike any other method, the most common method being overdose of medication, where it's really less than 1% of uh, teenagers and adolescents who try to commit suicide with an <clears throat> overdose 
who will actually die. So means really matter. And that's why both as pediatricians, mental health professionals, pediatric emergency medicine physicians, and emergency medicine physicians and clinicians, it's really critical to talk to our patients and their families about restricting these lethal means, be it be it pills, even though the risk is much lower, or firearms in the home. Well, when you're talking about, you know, we know how to do this better for, for example, motor vehicle accidents. I mean, do we have the information we need? I know that monies for um, firearm research has really been an issue. What about that? Do we have, do we have all the info? We absolutely do not have all the information. As of 2018, we actually did have enough federal funding appropriated to complete this national violent death reporting system, which now has data from all 50 United States on national violent deaths. So that includes firearms, but as well as other sorts of violent deaths. But deaths really are just the tip of the iceberg. We have much less information about hospitalization, about intention, about other mechanisms related to firearm injuries that aren't just related to deaths. And we actually have almost no information on the owners of firearms because that information is not publicly available and has not been uh, due to legislation for decades. So now at least we do have funding that has been appropriated for uh, gun violence research. So that first amount came out in 2021, was $25 million. This year, the American Academy of Pediatrics, as well as other research and pediatric organizations, advocated for $50 million, so $50 million. However, this budget that just got passed on Friday was at the status quo $25 million. So we'll continue to advocate for increased funding, because if you think about it, after the Dickey Amendment was passed in 1996, there was almost no substantial federal funding for 25 years for gun violence research. So if you think we're getting 25 million this year, that sounds like a lot, but that does not make up for 25 years of no funding. And and I think even beyond that, $25 million for something that when you're talking about 45,000 deaths, uh, another probably 120,000 annual firearm injuries, uh, it, it is barely a drop in the bucket compared to research related to issues that affect people at, at similar numbers. Um, Also, I think it's very important, and Lois kind of alluded to this in the beginning of our talk, that the success we've had with reducing injuries and fatalities from motor vehicle collisions uh, was not going to be one thing that was going to fix it. It was a multi-pronged approach that looked at things in terms of safety and regulations and and changing social habits and and beings related to things like drunk driving and the the, the acceptability of that. The same is true with firearm injuries. There is not one thing, there's not one law, there's not one regulation that is going to make the difference. It is going to have to take a number of approaches. Uh, and these approaches are actually going to have to vary probably based on the location because there's a lot of cultural differences around the country. And so to figure out the best way to reduce these things is going to take a lot of effort, but we can do it. It, it is something absolutely doable, but we need to we need to really work on this. Seems like there has to be a will. <laughs> I mean, there's there's a way, but we kind of got to want to. And I mean, it just feels like, you know, there are kids dying. I mean, these are our children. And gosh, what else do we need? I, I think that, that parents think that kids are not going to find the firearms. They certainly don't think that they're going to use them. And, you know, that they're hidden, they're locked away. I mean, I've heard parents say those things over and over. And do parents know what kids know? 
Unequivocally, no. There have been multiple excellent studies done over the years that have asked basically in these dyad pairs, they ask the parents, you know, do your kids know where the gun is? Have they ever touched it, uh, et cetera? And they ask the kids the exact same questions. And the, 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 there's a complete disconnect between so many families uh, where the parents say, nope, they've never touched it. They don't even know where it is. And the kid will say, yep, they keep it in the closet on the left side and I've taken it out with my friends. There's also the issue, we, we know that there are ways, if you have a gun in the house, that you can store it that will make it safer. There is no such thing as having a gun in the home that is purely safe. Matter of fact, when you look at that database that Lois was talking about, NBDRS, the, the National Violence Death Registry System, and you look at the suicides and unintentional deaths that occurred and how the guns were stored, every single place you see, there are guns that were appropriately locked up separate from the ammunition, and yet kids still got a hold of these things. Again, it speaks to this notion that kids know a lot more than we realize, or even when we realize it, most parents don't think their children are going to do this. There's very few parents that say, oh, I suspected this would happen. And so I think it's an important thing to keep in, to realize that kids know a lot more, and especially among the boys, they are going to be touching these guns in ways parents may not have anticipated. One of my favorite studies that I like to include in almost every presentation is one by Dr. Jackman and his colleagues. And it's an older study, but they basically had triads of boys who were friends. They're about eight years old. <clears throat> and so they would, behind a one-way mirror, there was a room with a bunch of drawers and a table, and they put some toys on the table. And then they put <clears throat> a real gun that had been re-engineered so it couldn't fire a bullet. However, if the child pulled the trigger, the uh, study investigators would know that the child did that. And they put that in a drawer. And they put three children in at a time, and they waited and watched to see what the children did and how long it took for them to find the gun. And the majority of the boys did find the gun, and about a third of them actually pulled the trigger. And what I love about that is all these boys had been sort of told the NRA kind of education of if you find a gun, leave the area and tell an adult. Well, 0% of the boys left the area and told anybody that they found the gun. And again, a third of them actually pulled the trigger. Yeah, in, in that same study, th three, three quarters of them found it, you know, just speaking to the curiosity of kids. And of those, three quarters of them, at a minimum, picked it up. And then you have the part of those kids who end up pulling the trigger, typically while pointing it at a friend and going, pew, pew. It sounds like a horror movie. <laughs> I, I have a question. Were parents on the other side of that window by any chance? I don't know, actually. I don't think they describe that in the paper. Yeah, it'd be interesting to see people's reactions to that. You know, like, I, I never thought my kid would do that. I mean, I think as parents... We believe that we do such a good job of making sure that our kids know information and somehow that knowing will supersede all the risks and it just doesn't. I, I think it is probably a safe thing to assume that parents are trying to do right by their children and want their children to be safe and certainly don't want them to hurt and or especially kill themselves. But on the other side, especially in households where guns are common, um, Many of the, the data, again, from that database of NVDRS show that many of the, the kids who ultimately killed themselves, they were actually the owners of the guns. These have been purchased for them by their parents. Again, within a culture of saying, you know, guns are part of our society, part of our family, and yet there's kind of a, a lack of recognition. Now, mind you, we buy cars and we share those cars with our children as well. And things happen there where, where collisions and fatalities can occur. What we want to do is figure out the best way to keep the children safe. 
So let's talk about that for just a minute because there are going to be people that are going to refuse to remove a firearm from the home. So what advice do we tell them about safer storage? I think the advice as everything in pediatrics does have to be tailored to the age of the child in the family. And so if you're talking about a younger child who may be curious and would potentially be at risk for an unintentional injury or death, you explain to the family, you know, we know children are curious. That's why we lock up medications and cleaning solutions and other toxic products. Similarly, we would not want your child to find and access a gun and then shoot it, either injuring or killing themselves or somebody else. And we actually know that children as young as two or three years old, they're actually strong enough to pull a trigger. And most parents also don't realize that. And then when you're talking about certainly school age and older children, there's curiosity that can lead to unintentional injuries and deaths. But that's when we start being more concerned about potential mental health risks and suicide. And so then at that point, the conversation turns to not only unintentional injuries and deaths, but also lethal means restriction. And again, in this context of just like you would lock up your sharps or any you know poisonous substances, then you should be careful about having guns in your home. And if you cannot remove them, if you have a child where you have mental health concerns or other safety concerns, that there are ways for safer storage, which specifically are you want your firearm to be unloaded and you need to have your ammunition and your firearm locked away separately, ideally in a way that no one else can access it except the authorized user. So now there are gun safes that have biometric locks, just like you can unlock your iPhone with a fingerprint. Same thing, you can unlock your gun safe with your handprint. And so those sorts of things certainly can keep your home safer. There are are a few points I'd like to kind of expand upon that Lois was saying. So first, absolutely, patients who have mental health problems are at a higher risk. But when we go back and we talk to families where somebody has either uh, uh, died by suicide or has attempted, sometimes up to 50% of the time, the family did not know there were mental health struggles. And so it's a really important thing to recognize that any child uh, is at risk when we're talking about this. The second thing, you know, one of the things a lot of families feel they have a gun in their house for protection to increase the safety within the house. Unequivocally, the data suggests that it, that having a gun in your home actually decreases the safety. We know that with regards to burglars breaking into your house, the likelihood that a family member is going to die, this is separate from suicide, uh, is about 18 times higher. And when it comes to suicide, it can be 30 or 40 fold higher as opposed to that burglar. These are just important things for people to recognize. The other thing with regards to um, kind of keeping it for the protection of your home, these biometric safes, one of the people, one of the things that people often say is I want it immediately available if that burglar comes in. These biometric safes can be opened in one to two seconds. So in terms of kind of the speed of access, should it be necessary, those are still available and they shouldn't be considered a burden and, and we should really be focusing on the safety related issues. So I'm thinking about counseling this family that is, you know, feels that my family is not safe without me having a firearm in the home. I mean, should we be asking? Because I'll be honest, just listening to that, I'm in my head, like, I'm, I'm, it's like you're girding yourself for a fight and it just feels like your blood pressure goes up. It's like, I know I need to say this stuff, but they don't want to hear it. They're going to be mad. So 
Should we be asking? Do parents want us to ask this stuff? Absolutely. We should be asking, but also maybe telling. I think one way, and you know, obviously as a primary care pediatrician, many times you know the families very well. So just even offering and saying, you know, we know that families have guns in their home. However, these are the risks. So if you are going to have a gun in your home, this is the safer way to store to prevent both intentional and unintentional. So sometimes you don't necessarily need to ask. You can just tell, just like you would, you don't necessarily ask about what medications they have in the home, but you assume they have them. And so how do you say, you know, store those safely? Um, How do you store cleaning things? How do you store sharp things um, to keep children safe? There, there are a couple of things to think about. So I, I would use an analogy along the lines of smoking. We know that parents who smoke in the house uh, increase risks associated with their children with asthma and other conditions, and that people feel strongly about it and that it's an addictive type of thing. Yet we still have the conversations. But we also have to have those conversations with the realization that sometimes what we're talking about are moving people along stages of change uh, and that we're helping kind of prepare them to think about making a change, whether it's from smoking or from keeping and or how they store a firearm in the home. I think it's very important that we state why we are asking these questions. As Lois was alluding to, one of the things I like to do is I start with the, with the pills, you know, because that's a much easier topic. And I say, listen, you know, when children attempt to hurt themselves by, you know, try, or try to um, commit suicide, we know that pills are the number one thing that they will use. And I talk about the lock boxes that you can get at the hardware store and putting everything in. And I go down to the, and it has to be the Tylenol, the Motrin. And I explain all that. And then I ask very straightforward the question, is there a firearm in the house? And regardless of whether they say yes or no, I provide the next uh, piece of data. The reason I ask is that should a child attempt to hurt themselves with a gun, almost universally, they will die, which is very different from pills. And so because of this, it's super important to make sure that it is as inaccessible as possible. And I actually go as far as saying, especially when a child does have a mental health problem, to say, the safest place is to store it outside of the home, which means in a safe deposit box. It can be stored with the police. It can be stored at gun shops. It can also be stored at firing ranges. And these are important things that we need to do to keep our children safe. Is there some data about parents wanting to wanting us to ask them? So there's excellent data about this. Uh, there was a study of over a thousand parents uh, that was asked this question, and among the families that did not own firearms. I think the numbers were in the 80% range said that, yes, it's appropriate to ask this. But even among the families who owned firearms, I forget the exact number, but it was close to 60% said it was appropriate to ask these things. We have to recall as pediatricians and as any type of physician, we are used to asking uncomfortable questions that people don't want us to ask about. We have no problem asking about bowel habits, urination, drug use, drunk driving, sexual activities. These are not topics people are looking forward to having conversations about, but they're important and we need to take firearms in the same way. Yeah, they they are they are hard. And honestly, I mean, I was thinking about, you know, my experience. There were a few people that would get pretty prickly. Oftentimes, a couple that I remember were folks that had been in law enforcement and also pretty adamant about it and offended that I would ask. And then I think a few folks that had been in the military in active duty that, you know, the firearm had saved their lives in, you know, when they were in Afghanistan or Iraq. And the idea of coming home and not having that was terrifying. And the conversation I've had with other veteran organizations was, you know, to ask them to, to 
have a buddy keep it, that that sometimes is an acceptable place to put that. Um, but yeah, they're, they're hard conversations. I sort of liken it to sometimes vaccine <laughs> conversations. It feels the same, mm, so uncomfortable. And I think that goes to, as you know all too well in, in counseling many, many families, you may not convince them with that first conversation, but emphasizing your shared goals, which is to keep the child safe and providing you know, scientific evidence and your professional expertise and leaving the dialogue open to have that conversation. And perhaps you can you know, move the needle a little bit over time. One of the things that is different about firearm conversations versus, say, smoking conversations, there are very few people out there who smoke who are not aware that there are health risks associated with smoking. But there are many firearm owners who really have not thought about it from the perspective of their children and the risks associated with that. And again, we all know lecturing is not going to be a particularly good approach for any subject matter. We need to make this a shared conversation. We need to explain, and we need to ask in a way that is as non-judgmental as possible and trying to be there to support them and recognizing it's not always going to change things. I have no anticipation of any of my conversations are going to work 100% of the time, but I do know that some of them do and that as we move people along and get them to think, it's, it's a staged process. Are there any parents where they have lost children to suicide or to unintentional gun injuries that may have been, you know, adamant gun owners that have been come out and publicly spoken about that. I mean, you know, it's just that we have these incredible lobbies that are just want to quash conversation. And are there their families or, you know, those kinds of groups that are willing to talk about this is what happened and we can't just let this continue to be the narrative? I can't name any individuals, but there is a wonderful advocacy group you may be familiar with called Moms Demand Action. They are an outgrowth of the Every Town for Gun Safety, which was organized after the horrific shooting of the children in Newtown, Connecticut. And so Moms Demand Action is not just about mass shooting events. It's really about keeping children safe. Every state has a chapter. They also have a very active national organization. So if uh, you're interested, and it, this is not for clinicians, it's for all people, um, I encourage people uh, to look for Moms Demand Action in their state. And they have really banded together and they do have you know, individuals that, that I have seen on social media and in other forums uh, where they have mothers uh, of children who have died as a result of gun violence. It seems like dads would be helpful too. <laughs> you know, well, that... dads are welcome to be involved <laughs> in action. So yeah, yeah. I mean, it just feels like, you know, the story is often what moves people. And, you know, I mean, I've often had the conversation with parents when there's been a suicidal teen or somebody with severe depression. And just to say, I know that you would never want your child to die because they found your gun. And I, I think the older I got, the more I was willing to say, I can't sleep at night knowing that this weapon is there right now. Can we do something right now? I think the other thing for any clinician out there, I would recommend they do the CALM course, the Counseling Access to Lethal Means course that's on the Suicide Prevention Resource Center site. It's If you just Google CALM and suicide prevention, 
I wish I had done that years ago. It was so helpful. And I think, I mean, it was off, it wasn't specifically youth focused, but just for anybody. But what I loved about it was there was a whole motivational interviewing piece and kind of like what to do when it, it, it isn't a complete, yes, I'll remove the, the firearm, but, you know, sort of the, not bargaining, but like, okay, what can you do kind of thing? And, and I found that to be very helpful. Are there any other resources that you're aware of? Well, I just wanted to make sure that people know that in all 50 states in the District of Columbia, you can have these conversations. There is There are no laws that prevent us, although Florida at one point in, uh, back in 2012 did pass a law very briefly that was a gag order against medical and healthcare providers talking to families. There are no laws that prevent us from doing this. The only part of that law that stayed in place, which I think is actually very appropriate, was one that says you cannot discriminate against the patients. You can't dismiss them from your practice if they don't want to have the conversation or if they own guns, but you can have these conversations with all families. I think a wonderful resource in how to have conversations, not just with families, but actually with your patients, particularly your adolescent age patients, is from the American Academy of Pediatrics, and it's called SAFER, S-A-F-E-R. It is free online course for all AAP members. And it is from Dr. Sherry Barkin's group out of Vanderbilt. And they have a series of really very real conversations between clinicians and families and patients. And some go well and some go maybe not as well. And really that motivational interviewing, what is the content? What is kind of your approach? Uh, And I would recommend that highly for primary care as well as emergency, um, emergency medicine and mental health clinicians. But certainly any subspecialist, right, they may find out that they have a patient who is at risk for self-harm. So this really is a conversation that is probably relevant for all clinicians. You know, one of the things you alluded to earlier was related to vaccines. I think at this point in our careers, we have all had conversations with families who have very strong opinions related to the COVID vaccine. And some of them are quite adamant that they do not want to have this conversation and it is not our business. Uh, And they're uncomfortable. But we still have these conversations. That's part of it. I think firearms are no different. You're absolutely right that you will run against families for whom they do not want to have this conversation and they will let you know. Well, fine. That's, but, but we just have to, that's part of our job. Well, and I would also couch it in, I, I would be doing you a disservice if I didn't give you this information. This information is so important to empower you. And were I not to tell you, that would be a bad thing. I mean, it wouldn't be fair for me to withhold that information. So I understand that this is an uncomfortable conversation, but it's so important because we know that kids die and none of us want that. I mean, I think, you know, I think trying to find that common ground, like we may not disagree or may not agree with each other, but we can agree that we want your kid to live and to be healthy and and to thrive. So, you know, this kind of, you kind of talked about it a little bit, Eric, but so on the bigger scale, I mean, are there some things that can happen? You said it wasn't just one thing. Are there some things that can happen on the state and national level? I mean, how, how do we make an impact? What, what needs to happen? Sure. I think there are a few things. One is to recognize that the, the legislation and regulations around firearms are incredibly heterogeneous around our country. There are states that have as many as 100 different laws around the regulation of firearms, and there are states that have zero laws around that. Not all laws probably have the same type of efficacy when it comes to 
reducing fatalities and risks, but some not only have excellent uh, demonstrated efficacy, but actually have very broad-based support from the public, including firearm owners. Those include things like universal background checks that that can reduce fatalities. Those are things like child access prevention laws that, that require gun owners to lock up their guns and make sure that children don't have access to them. Those are laws around uh, domestic violence, people who have uh, misdemeanors or restraining orders having to give up their guns uh, to reduce the risk of fatalities among an intimate partner violence. So these are some laws that can make a big difference and, and truly in national studies of thousands and thousands of people of different perspectives, the acceptance rate of these is, ranges from 70 to 90 percent. But we've had primarily congresses and local governments uh, that have refused to act on those things. Another really important thing, and it's something that I always just kind of find so galling, is around regulation of safety. Uh, Lois mentioned in the beginning of the program that uh, a two- or three-year-old has the ability to pull a trigger, and there are fatalities uh, every single week in the United States of children that young who pull the trigger and kill themselves or kill kill another kid. Firearms are the only item in the United States that is not regulated for safety. Uh, Let me just emphasize that. A device that is designed to hurt and kill has no regulations for safety regarding the ability to pull the trigger, et cetera. If we had the types of numbers of kids dying from any other mechanism, there would be outrage. If this were hair dryers, if this were the buckyballs that that lead to a couple of fatalities a year, we have regulations and commissions that come and try to regulate them. We need to bring that back for firearms. That is essential. Well, and I mean, I was thinking about, you know, like the fire, you know, the hair dryer thing. I mean, people would be hopping on that to like sue the manufacturer and you can't do that with guns, right? No, you cannot sue a gun manufacturer for any sort of injury or death. Now, the only loophole around that has to do with marketing, which is why the families of the Newtown, Connecticut uh, elementary school, school shooting, they finally were able to settle with Remington, the firearm manufacturer that made the weapon that killed all those children and those teachers. And that was because they could use this marketing loophole that the firearm was marketed towards a high risk individual or group. But that is really the only grounds that they could sue for this horrible, horrible shooting. And that's a loophole that was very specific to Connecticut state law. Uh, It is not available everywhere. I mean, how does that happen in a in a country that loves litigation, right? I mean, we're looking for somebody. To, I mean, you think about opiates, you know, we're we're and nicotine, tobacco companies. How does that happen? I mean, how is there so much power about guns? Where where did that come from? I feel uh, my blood pressure going up thinking about it. Yeah, no. I mean, there are very strong gun lobbies in the United States, the NRA being, of course, like the the pinnacle example of this, that have had very strong conversations with members of Congress to get these laws passed. And even today, where, uh, you know, President Biden just recently talked about trying to eliminate that, um, that rule. Currently, the Department of Justice is actually enforcing it. And so there's this kind of mixed uh, message about what's happening right now. But again, these are things that can change. And uh, although like with the tobacco industry, where for decades, they had kind of a Teflon coating that prevented any of those lawsuits from actually working, you could still sue them. And eventually they worked leading to, of course, you know, lawsuits and, and, and um, uh, settlements in the many billions of dollars uh, that really started to change things. I think tobacco is an excellent example. You know, in the 50s and 60s, when you had people smoking at rates of 50, 60% in the United States, 
we really took a multifaceted approach over the next many decades. And now we have smoking rates in the United States that are in the teens. This is possible. We can do it. It's going to take time and effort, and you need to take a lot of different efforts to do this. Have there ever been any opportunities where people from like AAP, I mean, have pediatricians ever met with NRA leaders to talk about this in some sort of civil discourse? Or is so, that possible? It, so, you know, I, I think it would be inappropriate to use one paintbrush to describe every single member of any organization. There are certainly been at the state levels, people who have met. I'm not familiar with anybody at the national level dealing with the, the hierarchy of the NRA. But I really believe that, again, as pediatricians, we have a special responsibility to children and we have a special voice on their behalf and that these are conversations that should take place. It's interesting. Several years ago, I sat on a panel, was in a small town, and they had these, they had created this, they called it something like civil conversations. And there were all kinds of people that came to this. They had, you know, gun owners, they had legislators and So we had this discussion and then we were at group tables and I was at a table with people that loved machine guns and firing them. They liked tanks, but it was so interesting. First of all, there was something like a a big aha for me was if you're going to figure out how to make a gun safe, these people knew because I don't know squat about guns, you know, other than like, I don't want to touch it. I mean, these guys knew, and I say guys because they were men that were with me at the table these guys knew. They knew like, oh, well, you could do this and that. They also knew that there was a real problem with a gun shop in their town that they said it keeps getting broken into. And they knew. And none of them were opposed to doing something to make guns safer. None of them. And it was such a fascinating conversation to have. I mean, because I was like clearly the outnumbered one. I mean, I my opinion was definitely different and they knew it because I'd been on the panel. It was also really interesting. There was a legislator who, I, I still can't believe he did this. He kind of pulled his jacket open to show me he had a concealed weapon and said, do you feel safer now? And I said, no, that is terrifying. Why would I feel safer? And it was it was like, it felt very threatening. Like, really? So, I, you know, but I think these conversations can be had, but there's just so much fear and anger around it that just, I don't know, it, it's, it is, it's just disheartening. But it also sounds like, much like COVID vaccine, it's the one-on-one conversations with people who know us and trust us and love us, and they know that we love them. And that they're willing to, you know, maybe make these small changes. And and then we still have to keep advocating for the big changes at the same time. Absolutely. Yes, yes. And just know that it's going to take time, right? Um, and it, the individual conversations are important, but ultimately we need larger organizational and intentional change. And again, uh, looking at the motor vehicle example, the National Highway Transportation Safety Administration and the Institute uh, for Insurance for Highway Safety, they're really charged with safety of the roads, the drivers and cars. And we have nothing like that for firearms. So having some national level organization where they're really focused on safety is just one place to start. And then, as Eric talked about, there are some legislation that we know is very effective. Uh, Legislation varies a great deal at the state level. We have over 100 laws here in Massachusetts, which we think is why we have among the lowest firearm death rates in the country. But that is 
you know, we're sort of unique us in California. Many other states have much fewer laws, which means there are much higher rates of firearm access and as a result, firearm deaths and injuries, not just to children, but people of all ages. And that doesn't make a difference. I mean, those, I, I keep thinking like all your friends are doing it, you know? I mean, t- those numbers for some of those states, it, it, I mean, do people not believe that? I think people don't, or they feel like it's their civil liberties, right? And it's hard to even pass other things that we know are very effective, like universal background checks at the federal level. So again, depending on where you are, just like many other things that we're actually seeing in the United States, right? Your your health and your healthcare access and your the environment of health really changes depending on where you're living. So we have a suicide prevention action network here in Kalamazoo. And one of the things we did was we invited gun owners, uh, gun shop owners to come to a meeting because we wanted to talk about you know, suicide prevention. And it was really interesting, again, having those conversations because they said in Michigan, we have universal background check, but one of the problems was it was only as good as the information that the police departments had. And they said they often didn't have very good information. And so they said it it often didn't make a difference. I mean, a, a big one was the Uber driver shooting that happened in Kalamazoo, which was horrific. I don't know if you remember it, but a guy was an Uber driver and he picked up people and he killed them. Several. There were like five deaths and he drove around town. Some people he drove around, dropped off and didn't kill them and some he did. But this guy had bought a gun at a gun shop. And one of the, the gun shop owners said, well, you can just tell by looking at someone and then in the next sentence said, yeah, this guy had bought a gun there. And, you know, they they said they could tell because somebody had crazy eyes. And I'm like, well, I don't know if he didn't have crazy eyes then, but he sure had them then. And then, of course, we had the Oxford shooting not that long ago. And then, gosh, within the last month, there was a man that shot his two-year-old. And, you know, it just, I mean, those things, you, you keep hearing the the phrase, never again. And... It, that doesn't seem to uh, to be enough to say that. And there just has to, we have to keep beating the doors, I guess, right? Yeah. So two of our colleagues are actually working with some new Hampshire gun dealerships also to kind of look into what are some other ways that we can reach out. So it's Dr. Matthew Miller and Dr. Deb Israel. So they're doing some very interesting work in that space in looking at who else can we engage, right? That we need to be reaching across the aisle and working together. Because again, we're not saying get rid of all guns. We're saying, how can we make this world safer? Um, Just like we don't get rid of cars, we don't get rid of swimming pools, right? We just have to learn how how do we live and make this world safer? Yeah, yeah. Well, and I think another resource for parents, I I think the AAP um, healthychildren.org has some nice information on there that I think is we can make available to our patients. So... This is such a heavy, heavy thing. It, it just weighs on you when you know that it doesn't have to be like this, and yet it still is. So, so just in closing, are there a couple of take-home points that you have for you know clinicians what they can use in their practice setting, whether it's in the hospital, ER, office? I mean, are there a couple bullet? Ooh, I shouldn't have said that. <laughs> I was going to say bullet points. <laughs> a couple of take-home points. Yeah, it's it's interesting. You said bullet points. You know, this is firearms are pervasive in our society, and they permeate all elements of our culture, even sometimes when we don't realize it. Just like that, I think a couple of the take home points: one, 
is that it is absolutely uh, essential that we recognize that firearms are you know, one of the leading, if not the leading cause of death in our patients. And if that is the case, it is our job to do something about this. Second, we need to have the conversations. They're not all going to be comfortable. They need to be conducted with thoughtfulness. We need to be respectful of our patients, but we need to have them regardless. Third, I think recognizing, as Lois pointed out, you know, when it comes to depression and suicidality, means matter. When it comes to, you know, if they have access to a firearm, when people go to try to kill themselves, uh, they will use the most lethal means that is available, but they'll do it in the moment. And so if the pills are the most uh, lethal thing in the house, that's what they're going to go for. And if it's a firearm, they're going to go for that. And if the firearm is there, they're most likely going to die. And this is an important thing. We can use it in our conversations with our patients. As far as suicide with a firearm, right, there is no time for regret. If you overdose on pills, you can text your friend, you can call your parent, you know, or you develop symptoms and then it's obvious. And I think that is an important thing. And also, you actually can't assume who owns a firearm. I have been surprised in the emergency department setting that I realize I just need to bring this up with everybody because I personally am not good at predicting who owns a firearm. And I think coming honestly, and really, again, with the safety of the child being a shared goal, and I always start that we, you and I, we have a shared goal in your child's health and safety. And so this is why I'm asking you this. This is why I am talking about how we can keep your child safer. And in, you know, Eric and I, in our work, it's always in a time of crisis. I think as a pediatrician in primary care or family practitioner in primary care, you have a little bit of the luxury of hopefully it's not always a crisis situation. And you'll also have a different challenge. Sometimes the person you're talking to does not have agency over what is happening with that firearm. So although one parent might want to do something to keep their child safe, they may not have the agency to do that. But again, having those conversations over time, acknowledging the challenges and the barriers and being realistic will help you keep those conversations going. Well, those are all, I mean, those seem like doable things. And and again, I, I liked what you said about a shared goal. You know, we both care about your kid and what can we do together these are the things I can do to help. These are the things that you can do to help and, and let's do it so that your child lives. And one, one last thing we're talking about, of course, the, at the role of the individual patient level. Uh, let's not forget the broader advocacy, the importance of talking to our representatives, both the state and national level, to really push for these types of uh, changes in legislation and changes in regulations as well. I love to close my conversation with a fun question. And that is, if you could go back and talk to yourself when you were a resident, what advice would you give yourself? And I'll start with you, Lois. Well, I think at least when I was a resident, I thought the road would be straight and clear ahead after residency. What I found, it is actually very bendy. There are a lot of right turns and left turns, but that's what makes the journey fun. So five years ago, I took some time out and did a health policy fellowship where, and I got interested in that because I was initially interested in how legislation affected injuries and then became more interested in how legislation affects health. So although I continue to work on injuries, I'm looking at legislation and policy in a broader view. And uh, that has just really um, continued to make my career more interesting and fulfilling all the time. And how about you, Uh, Eric? 
So I think a frequent piece of advice that people are given with well-meaning, and it's probably good advice for some, is to really stick with one thing and dive deep. I'm an emergency physician. I, I can't stick with one single thing. And I think that that's advice that I would always give myself and to others, that it's okay to, to work in multiple areas and explore and change over time. Uh, like Lois, I also took uh, some time off. I actually took my family abroad to uh, Laos, and we we worked there and helped in a pediatric hospital. And I would give anybody and everybody the uh, the advice to Take those types of opportunities. They don't come easy. Nobody's going to hand it to you, but they are incredibly worthwhile. I wish physicians got sabbaticals. That would well, be great. One piece of advice. Sure. Uh, as we all know, we need to choose our friends well, but I think choosing your colleagues well. I've been so fortunate to work with Eric all these years, and uh, that has even you know made the experience even that much richer. And I think much more effective to be two voices rather than one. Absolutely. Absolutely. Lois and I take this act on the road, and it is one of our greatest joys. Well, and I think that's one of the, I mean, that's why I love the AAP so much is getting to meet people like you and, you know, just to have this big voice. I mean, when you've got 67,000 people that are pushing for something, for change, for kids, oftentimes it happens, maybe slow, but, you know, you're not alone. And and that that's that's helpful, right? <laughs> Don't ever be alone. So, well, listen, thank you so much to both of you. I appreciate what you're doing. And I, I hope that listeners will be galvanized to, you know, start having the hard conversations if you're not already and to be thinking about what you can do really in a bigger way. Um, because I, you know, having the physician title is, is very powerful. And I think we underestimate that people, you know, still, I think still respect us and, and listen to what we have to say because, you know, we're doing it for the right reasons. Absolutely. So I think state AAP chapters are a very good way to start your advocacy, Moms Demand Action, or even uh, signing up to or registering for the AAP's legislative conference, which is actually occurring next weekend. Hopefully uh, that's virtual, but in the future should be back in person. So if you're interested in advocacy and want to learn more, uh, the AAP is a tremendous resource. Absolutely. Well, thanks to you both and you guys have a great day. I am so grateful for this conversation because we really have to do more to protect our children from firearms. So I have a whole bunch of takeaways and I hope you'll take time to listen to them all because I think there are things that we can do. Number one, this stuff is hard. The conversation is painful and frustrating, but there is a way to change the unthinkable number of children in adolescent firearm injuries and death. That equals hope, but you know what? That's not enough. It means action. So here comes some startling statements. The enormous impact of youth firearm injury and death is unique to the United States. Firearm manufacturers cannot be sued. This is unlike any other product. Firearms have no safety regulations. Remember, this is the number one cause of death in kids. Are we really going to be okay with this? Number two. The CDC 2020 data showed that there were 45,000 firearm fatalities, and this was greater than all motor vehicle accidents, and of those, there were 3,500 pediatric deaths. This has now become the number one killer. Number three, there are enormous disparities in deaths and injuries in our children of color, with homicide leading suicide firearm deaths. There is insufficient research to fully understand these disparities, and this really warrants a, a deep look at causes and solutions. Number four, 
when talking about suicide means matter. They matter a lot. When a firearm is used, there is a 95% chance of fatality. There is no opportunity for ambivalence about dying. No time to change your mind. Number five, parents believe that their children will not find a gun that is stored in the home and certainly will not use it. That is just not true. Kids know. There is a huge disconnect and the implications are deadly and heartbreaking. Number six, parents want to do the right thing. They want to keep their kids safe, but kids are curious and smart. And even a two or three-year-old has the strength to pull a trigger. That was really startling to me and just so tragic to think about the implications of that statement. Number seven, pediatric clinicians, that's us, have valuable information about safety, and it is our responsibility to let parents know what we know, even if and when the conversation is difficult. Most parents, even those who own guns, want us to talk about gun safety. Number eight, parents often don't know about their children's mental health issues, and having a gun in the home with a child or teen who has a mental illness is a recipe for a catastrophe. Number nine, there are things we can do to make a difference, such as biometric safety access. That, that's one way, but there's so many more. Number 10, if a parent is not ready to remove a gun, it should be locked with ammunition locked separately. But we have to remember that even when that happens, it isn't fully safe. And we have to make sure that parents know this. Number 11, when having the conversation, make it about safety. Be non-judgmental. You are offering life-saving information, and it's not fair to withhold that. Number 12, asking is legal in all 50 states. Number 13, for the little ones, we talk about car seats and smoking around them, safe storage of cleaning products, and covering outlets. And gun storage has to be part of that conversation. Better yet, no gun in the home. Number 14, with older kids, the risk when there is a firearm in the home is suicide and homicide. We have to think about other safety things like pills, knives, keys, and yet guns is one of the major issues with our kids' safety. Better yet, no gun. Number 15, gun laws do make a difference and can include universal background checks, child access prevention, and red flag laws. We can make a difference by advocating for these changes. Number 16, we can educate those who make policy and help them do the right things on behalf of children. This is our job. Number 17, a take-home. With firearms being the leading cause of death in children, we have so much work to do. Number 18, ask with respect. Don't make assumptions about who owns a gun. And number 19, means matter. This is pretty sobering stuff, and it's easy to feel really helpless that we just can't make change because there is so much backlash about talking about firearms. But the reality is no parent wants their child to die at the hand of a firearm that belongs to that parent. So we have to go there. Be brave, ask the questions, and keep doing all the amazing things that you do for children. Please take a look at the show notes because there's lots of really great resources for you. And as always, take care of yourselves. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of Pediatric Meltdown. In the words of Maya Angelou, do the best you can until you know better. Then when you know better, do better. Let's do better together. This podcast was made possible by the team at Streamlined Podcasts. Music was composed by Connor McHugh and cover art was designed by Alexia Barrero.